We're going to look at chapter 2, just two verses today. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And what we've looked at basically to this point in chapter 1, John was talking about Gnostics, talking about Gnosticism, which believed that matter was evil. Therefore, Jesus could not have had a physical body because the body is evil. So they would have rejected Jesus having a physical body. They believed at that time, they believed first, second century, so forth. Uh, they believed that Jesus only appeared to go to the cross. He didn't have a body, so Jesus was not fully human. He was fully divine, but not fully human. But the problem is, Jesus came into this world and lived in every way that we did. And then John writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He went through a very extensive uh, system there to say, look, we know Jesus was real. He, had, he was physically real. He was the son of God, but he was also fully man. Now, this continued on that God was light and in him there was no darkness. And the light met to the moral perfection of God. We see it in scripture, I am holy, therefore you be holy. And then last week we talked about those that say that they do not sin or that you can sin and indulge the body. It doesn't really matter since this world is polluted. You have the special knowledge that it helps you rise above, above all this corruption in the world and you can get into heaven through special knowledge. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Jesus was real. He came to this earth from heaven. He was born of a virgin. He grew up in every way that we did. Uh, scripture doesn't record it, but there's no doubt Jesus skinned his knees. He did everything that a, that a child would do. He grew in favor with God and man and never sinned. And then took that sinless life and put it on the cross in our behalf. Now John shifts the focus a bit here in chapter 2. And he begins by saying, look, the Christian life is going to be one of struggle. There's nobody in this room that is going to make it, particularly the moment you got saved, uh, until the moment you go to see him, every one of you is going to sin. That's, that's a fact. You won't make it through this life post-salvation without sinning. But the purpose and the goal of the Christian life is not to sin. That means as we get saved, when I was a young Christian, I have noticed I've gotten better. But the bottom line is I still sin. I still make mistakes. I still stumble. I know you guys and gals do too. But the, the goal or the aim of the Christian life is to sin less. And so against this backdrop of do whatever you want to do, it doesn't matter, as the Gnostics were teaching, and maybe some that you know teach. It doesn't matter what you do. After we die, we cease to exist in a, in a, in a form of you don't know who you are, and it was all gone. So today, John wants to deal with 
the Christian dynamic of what happens when a believer sins. What happens when you do sin? Well, here's a bit of good news this, this morning. I know we've been dealing with a lot of bad news, but this is good news. First of all, Christ is our defense. Let's look at verse 1a. My little children is not a reference to their spiritual condition. It is actually an affectionate term that John uses to say, I love you. In, in fact, John uses it seven times in his later years. So John sees himself more as a father figure to, these, to this audience that he is writing. He sees himself more as a father figure. This is a very tender term. And then he writes this, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. There it is. That is the key. So over against the Gnostic view, you live how you want to, you sin. As long as you have the special knowledge that we will give you, you're able to rise above it, be in heaven. So the, the, the Gnostics say on one hand, you're between two worlds. On this world, your body is sinful, indulge it. On the other end, they say, as long as you have this knowledge, you go to heaven. They separate the sarks from the spirit. And, and we do too in some sense. We do too, but not in the Gnostic sense. So he writes, these things that I write to you so that you may not sin. Writing these things, too much, too much ink is spilt on this. I think it refers to the whole of the epistle, that which went before it, and now what he's getting ready to say. I write these things to you. The ultimate purpose here or goal is that you may not sin. Raymond Gidrich, Gingrich, in his commentary, writes this, Sin is so terrible in the sight of God that it may not be indulged even once. Let's put it this way. Sin is an offense to God. Would you all agree with that? Any type of sin, whether it's a white lie or whether it's murder. Sin is sin. It is, well, you could put it this way, despicable in the eyes of God. And the goal of the Christian life is to go through, once you get saved, and I bet you can say this in your own life, as you learn more about the Christian walk, you naturally focus on God more than you did before you were saved. Therefore, the Holy Spirit makes his presence known to you when you sin. You go, yeah, I sinned. I should not have done that. When you're a younger believer, you don't know those things. You learn those things by trial and error, if you will, becoming a follower of Christ. And I bet you within this room, many of you know exactly when you sin at that moment because you've been growing in your spiritual walk with him. Now, John says that's critical to be able to identify that. We'll get into that in just, just a minute. I, I remember Dr. Sweeney. I took uh, Protestant theology in the 19th century, which was actually the 1800s. And we could each pick a book that we could read. And the purpose of it was to study, and the mine, the one that I chose from the approved list, 
was Charles Fenney and the Spirit of American Evangelicalism. So the professor said, I want one hour. The, the, the class was three, so as we finished these reports, we wrote papers on it, we submitted it. He said, I want you to give a one-hour lecture on the book you read with the theology of the person that you were reading. Uh, I remember one quote from the book, it's kind of funny. Uh, Charles Finney uh, was actually a professor at Oberlin College in Ohio. And he was walking to his office one day and this girl was walking up to him and he says, good morning, daughter of Satan. <laughs> and to which the girl replied, good morning, father. <laughs> so, uh, he, goes, he goes to his office and Charles Finney writes that he chuckled a lot that day about that saying. Charles Fenney was an orphan at a very early age. And I want you to understand that, that sometimes your theology is shaped by your upbringing. It really is. So Charles Fenney, at the age of nine, was put on a train with other orphans and taken to supposedly new homes. Charles Fenney his theology was that when you get saved, you can reach a state of sinless perfection. And I think part of his theology was shaped by the imperfection of what happened to him as a, as a young boy and all the things that happened to him as a young boy, which is through the book. And it's, a, it's a really good read. I'm pretty sure it's still available. But Charles Finney wanted a world in which it was perfect. Because his upbringing was anything but perfect. So Charles Finney at Oberlin College developed the idea and taught his students that you could reach a state of sinless perfection. And do you know that there are Christians today that believe that you can reach a state of sinless perfection? In fact, if you are still sinning post-salvation, you're not really saved. And some of those are the, are the hardcore groups, <clears throat> the fundamentalists, which I would say we're fundamentalists in things that really matter. But these fundamentalists believe that you could reach a state of sinless perfection, and therefore if you sin question marks about your salvation. There's, there's two problems here. The first problem is this. Those who sin without any sense of guilt or repentance. John says, if we say we have no sin, this is from chapter 1, then we are a liar. These people here, they sin willy-nilly, I don't need to repent of it. I don't care about it. Well, that's a Gnostic understanding. And I've heard Christians say, it doesn't matter if I sin. The blood of Christ cleanses me from my sin. That's true. Paul says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he said, no. So you can't live a life without some form of repentance as you live your Christian life. I think... 
my understanding, this is me, what I've learned from the Bible, is that when you sin, the best time to repent is the moment that you sin. And sometimes the sin is big, sometimes it's small, but you want to repent of those sins. A second issue, which I think John is driving at here, those who have a keen sense of sin try to avoid it, but still sin. Guess what? Welcome. That's everybody here. I bet you, I bet you, challenge me on this. Go home, take five minutes, and write a list of sins. I bet you, you hit 20 pretty quick. So we know, we know as we live our Christian life, God, I don't want to do that. Paul said it too. I struggle. That which I want to do, I don't do. Because I'm still in this flesh. This flesh is going to fight us tooth and nail until we see Jesus. But we know as believers, we know that we don't want to sin, right? That's all of us, but you will. I don't know how many times you'll sin this week, but you will, trust me. We all do. Maybe in thought, maybe in word, maybe in deed. But then this is the group that John's talking about. You can't reach a state of sinless perfection. John is casting that off to the side. He's also casting off the idea that you just indulge the flesh. What he's focused on now is what happens to a believer when the believer sins and stumbles. So on one end, we have those who sin and fall and fail to repent versus those who know sin is wrong, but they still stumble into it. That's kind of where we're at in this verse. My little, my little children almost said my little friends. <laughs> my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. So if that's the goal, if that's truly the goal, there has to be some way by which we can bridge that goal in the event, in the horrible event, that you see a $20 bill, somebody dropped out of their wallet, and you walk up and you pick it up and you see the guy walking and you stick it in your pocket and you go the other way, right? In the event that that happens and you get greedy and you want the $20, how are you going to fix that? Well, John gives us the provision in 1B. But if anyone does sin, if is a second-class conditional, John assumes that this is going to happen. So if you sin, wink, wink, you are going to sin. But if you sin, anyone, it's a, anyone here is without a definite article, and it refers to any type of believer, not a particular class of believer. So it's believers in general. If anyone does sin, harmontano, and this word sin for harmontado means to act contrary to the will and law of God. It means to engage in wrongdoing. Show of hands, how many had wrongdoing this week? Oh, okay, whoa, okay. Y'all really need this then, right? Oh, I, I did too. We shouldn't make fun of it, but. So it's doing something that is contrary to the will, to the knowledge of God, or to God's standards. 
the ultimate standard that God gave us is in the New Testament as well. Be holy for I am holy. So we, we're like the Air Force. John, you probably like this. I mean, Jim, you, you probably like this. No, you were Navy. John was Air Force. Never mind. I had it right the first time, John. Aim high, right? That, that was the Air Force. Aim, aim high. So as we're aiming high, if anyone does sin, if you do make a mistake, if you uh, fall into sin or temptation, I like what D. Evan Hebert wrote in his commentary, such a fall into sin does not destroy his membership in the family of God. Let's establish that. John assumed here with the second class conditional if that it will take place. Now you can all breathe a collective sigh of relief. Right? It doesn't destroy his, mem his membership into the family, but it does disrupt fellowship between the father and his child. God's holiness demands it be dealt with. And I put the brackets in here as soon as possible. If we could reach a state of sinless perfection, we'd have to close this church. Because none of us reach it. And of course, then you have to go back and get saved again. And my argument has always been you can only be saved as many times as Christ died. He died once for sin. You can only be saved once. Therefore, those who have trusted in Christ they are saved. Positionally, we are right with God. But in the flesh, we still struggle. But there has to be a struggle. That's the key. If there is no struggle with sin, then you have to go back and say, did I really get saved? If, if, if a person can get saved and then never see them again, you see them, they're living like the world, I will be like James, can that faith save? Because there should be this little person, not little person, powerful person inside of you, the Holy Spirit going, that's wrong. That's wrong. The good news. <clears throat> writing to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We is purposeful on John's part. He could have said you, but he said we. When John says we, he's including himself in the discussion. We, and that's us, brothers and sisters, that's us. We, those who call on the name of Jesus Christ, who have been saved, we have an advocate. Paraoklios, paraoklios. And that word advocate means to call upon for help. To call upon for help. The word literally means one who helps. Or one who is summoned to come by our side. Who's the advocate? Well, the advocate is the Lord Jesus Christ. This word advocate is used in a legal sense. This is a defense attorney arguing before the judge that his client is not guilty. And in that sense, in one sense, that is absolutely true. 
Jesus is our defense attorney. He's the one that argues before the Father. Maybe not argues, but tells the Father. Because Jesus said, to see me is to see the Father. We are one. But this Jesus Christ who died and paid for our sin is the one who is our defense attorney in the heavenly realms. What about this Jesus Christ? What is his fitness to be the advocate? John breaks it down in small little four phrases here. The first is this, was with the Father. I know this is crazy, but that little word if talks about a personal relationship. Jesus knows his Father, the Father knows Jesus. He is in a relationship with the Father. It's exhibited on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me at that moment in time? For the first time in all eternity, God is now watching his son take on sin. Some scholars have argued probably adequately that at that point, God turned his back because he couldn't look upon sin yet because his son was the sacrificial lamb, it was an acceptable offering to him. So when we think about sin, how deadly is sin? Sin was so deadly that God said, you have to go down and you have to pay for their sins in full and complete. And therefore, as a believer, knowing that, then I should make it the goal of my life to sin less, not sin more than Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6. Should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Don't let that happen. Strategically, John puts this, this word right in here. Jesus, referring to the humanity of Christ. For all of you Gnostics, Jesus had an earthly name. It was Jesus. He was a fully human man. And so Jesus knows, he knows what it's like to confront sin. He knows that, even though he didn't sin. Because he knows exactly the tricks of Satan to drive us or to push us towards sin. Jesus knows that. He was fully human. Jesus understands every ounce of humanity because he was fully God and fully man trying to reconcile the two so that he could draw us nigh unto God. Quite amazing. He uses another pointed term here, Christ, which is a reference to his Messiahship. Christ the Messiah. And lastly, John says this, the righteous. The Greek word there refers to sinless perfection. What are we talking about just a little while ago? Sinless perfection can only be found in Christ. And when we have trusted in Christ, in one sense, we are made perfect. But on this side of heaven, we're going to struggle, guys. And the only way that we can keep that relationship 
is not based on what I can do, but what was done for me. And there's a big difference. And the attitude should be, Father, I'm sorry that I sinned. Help me not to do that anymore. And at that moment, it's done. Of course, sometimes your sin may involve somebody else, and then you've got to take the next step and say, look, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have treated you that way, shouldn't have done that. We've all been there and we've done that. And this word righteous also refers to doing what God requires. So Jesus Christ is our defense. I think I have a really good quote. Yeah, here it is. It's coming up. This is one of the best quotes I've heard in quite a while, but I don't want to jump ahead too much. We still have 28 minutes. No. Jesus is not only our defense, but he's our sacrifice. And this big word, propitiation. Hilosmos. Hilosmos. It's the means by which we are forgiven. This word, propitiation. It's the means by which we are forgiven. So, Jesus Christ, who was just mentioned in the verse before, is the propitiation or the means by which our sin is forgiven. David Smith. At, 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 first, at first, when I looked at this quote, I went, yeah. Sometimes pastors get enlightened sometimes. David Smith wrote this. Our advocate does not plead that we are innocent or present extenuating circumstances. He acknowledges our guilt and presents his vicarious work as the grounds for acquittal. So when you sin, you know what Jesus says to the Father? Charge that to me. That's what propitiation means. It means to take the place of something that somebody else did. Uh, I, I remember, I don't know, it was two years ago. It was really kind of funny, but I got called to jury duty. And if I've said this before, just it's senior moments. So I get called to the jury box, and there's 12 of us, 12 angry I'm the first one that's called. I don't even know if they know what you do for a living <clears throat> or how that even works. But I remember the judge asking us each questions. One, I was the only juror up there saying, yes, your honor, no, your honor. Everyone else was disrespectful. Yeah, no, nope. Very disrespectful. The alleged crime was that this man took a baseball bat to his victim. And the judge said, allegedly two state troopers had to take the bat out of his hand. That was the premise. So he said, juror number 14, I still remember my, my, <laughs> still remember my number. Juror number 14 judged to me, would two state troopers' testimony sway your decision? I stood up and I said, yes, Your Honor, it would. 
prospective jurors over here waiting to get called up to take my spot in just a minute. Both defense and prosecutor went to the judge. There was a 20-second discussion. The judge looked at me and said, juror number 14, you are dismissed. That was like at 8.30. I was good because I got, I got to go home. And, and they said, you will not be called back. When we think about what Christ did for us, we think about Christ took it for us. It, the fact we are guilty, but the blood of Christ covers us from all wrongdoing. At the same time, because we know the offense of sin is so bad that we want to aim to live a life of holiness, knowing all full well that we're going to fall short but not in the sense of knowing that I'm going to fall short, that I don't even worry about it. Because we know that sin is so bad. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Next time we are tempted to sin, we need to burn this image into our heart. Cheat here, lie here, stumble here. Get that image that, wait a minute, this sin caused Jesus Christ to go to the cross. And therefore, John writes, I write these things that you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate that will stand in front of the Father and put it all on himself. And so that's why we can't go out of here this afternoon and just say, well, it's just a little sin. And, and, and know this from my heart, that as your pastor, I want all of us, including me, to live our lives in such a way as to bring glory to him. We also have to be careful. This was not in my notes. This is just me. We also have to be careful. Paul writes this several times. Have to be careful that we don't become judge and juror on another brother or sister. And that we treat them any less when they admit that they've stumbled and they've sinned. Instead of that, we rally around them, we pray for them, we lift them up to God, and we help each other run this race. That's what this is. This is a community of believers. We love one another, and we want the best for one another, don't we? We want everyone to succeed in their Christian walk with him. And the way that we do that is being careful. And when you point your finger at somebody, you have three right here pointing back at you. Jesus said, let he that is without sin cast the first stone. And if I remember right, that was a woman in prostitution. Those of you who are spiritual should restore a brother or sister that stumbles. And also be careful lest you be caught up in it as well.
So sin is very, very tight. And we have to be careful how we deal with it and also our response to it. He is the propitiation for our sin. And here's the kicker. I think John goes back to chapter 1 and he says, paraphrasing, of course, he says, and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. He's like saying, okay, you Gnostics, you don't have it, but he died for you too. Jesus is the sacrifice for the whole world. I bet you I could have left the scripture off of this, given you the scripture, and had you quote it verbatim. I bet you you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. As we think about the sins, we think about everything that John said, we also know that we live in a world that desperately needs to know Christ. And that's people that we know. Thursday, I met with my friend from the Astrological Society. And I kind of floated it out there that I was a pastor. It was the first time we ever had any of that discussion. And I said, I tell you this because when that is brought up, it's like the kiss death. And he laughed and he said, no, it's not. So floating a little bit out there. He also wore a veteran's hat. And I didn't know that. So you start picking up on this. And at some point, I will share the gospel. At some point, I, I've got I've to continue to get there. And, and that's really all it is, brothers and sisters. It's, it's starting with baby steps. And sometimes, if it's a drastic situation, you share the gospel. But we're in the world, but not of it. And because we're in the world, we run into all kinds of people. And we share the gospel with them as we have opportunity to share the gospel. I've got a little video here I think is really good. And I'm going to close the sermon with this video. Now every one of us here tonight knows that there's something wrong inside. We have a tendency within us that disturbs us. We long for victory over sin, sins of thought and word and deed. And the Bible reveals that we are born radically wrong. We are members of a human race that has turned its back upon God. There's something inside that makes it easier to go wrong than to go right. And some deep evil seems to sap the human race. There's a bias in the bowl that takes it off course. There's a gravity that pulls us down when we want to rise high in spiritual attainment. And the secret is that something within us has died. 
the spiritual part of our being that God gave us has died because of sin. This is the reason why we can neither see nor enter the kingdom of heaven unless there is a radical change. And here is a great revelation from Holy Scripture and we also know it in our own experience that we cannot make this radical change ourselves. That God says you must have, you must know, you must experience if you are ever to see or enter the kingdom of heaven. Why the cross? Because on the cross the Lord Jesus Christ was made sin for you. He bore your sin, sir, in his body on the tree. He was the only man who ever went through hell on earth. And he did it for you. To cleanse you from the stain of sin. To deliver you from the power of sin. To clear you from the penalty of sin. So that there could be nothing between you and God. Christ Jesus bore your sin in his body on the tree. So, ladies and gentlemen, we come to this great conclusion tonight. That unless God is willing to do something about it, we are sunk and there is no hope of us ever entering or seeing the kingdom of heaven. But here is the Christian gospel, ladies and gentlemen. Here is the good news that God loves us. Because he loves us, he's willing, he's yearning to undertake this great change for us. Only we are willing. And because Christ has died and risen again, I have wonderful news for you here tonight. Hundreds of you here yearn to know what it is to be in the kingdom of God. Hundreds of you want to know the victory that God gives to those that belong to Christ. If you will repent, believe and confess, God will do the rest. He will come into your cleansed being that he now possesses and he will live his life in you. He will give you eternal life, divine life. Right now you will enter the kingdom of heaven and you will live in the kingdom of heaven whilst you're on earth. And when death comes, it won't be death. You'll be with Christ and you'll go into the glories of eternal heaven. That is what God will do for you tonight if you will repent and believe and confess it. John said, I write these things that you may not sin, and that Christ is our propitiation, the means by which we obtain forgiveness, not only for your sin, but the sins of the world.